1: Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area.
2: If I were to ask you to guess what is the oldest Protestant church in California, where is it located? You might think, well, maybe San Diego. San Diego's been around for a while, or maybe up north in Sacramento. How about if we narrowed it down to San Francisco? Well, if you guessed San Francisco, you'd be absolutely right. In fact, a church whose roots go back so far and so deep that they even predate California as a state. Now, we entered the Union in September of 1850, but it was 1849 when First Baptist of San Francisco was formed in the city, and there it sits to this very day. Talk about a rich, deep, long history and heritage of ministry and if you're familiar with the city and have ever been up Market Street long about Octavia you see it right there on the corner technically at 22 Waller and Octavia in San Francisco it is an iconic church with a pretty incredible history and joining us to talk about not just the past but most importantly with an eye toward the future is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of San Francisco Pastor Ben Day. Pastor great to have you with us welcome Thank you Craig so excited to be here it must have been a bit intimidating, I would imagine. When you were first called to a First Baptist Church, you uh, began your ministry, your roots are in Louisiana, but coming out west here to California, and all the stories you've heard about how crazy we Californians are, <laughs> let alone San Franciscans. Well, what was that initial experience like? How did it all come together? And I suppose I might begin with yet another question kind of sandwiched in here, and that is that, uh, boy, you must have gotten uh, somebody's attention that, you were called to pastor First Baptist of San Francisco literally as COVID was right doing its thing uh, along about August, September of 2020. So give us some of that background.
3: Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I, I don't think I knew the rich history of First Baptist San Francisco when I even sit my resume in to be considered for senior pastor. Um My wife and I were from Louisiana, and after I graduated from seminary, God had called us to Las Vegas. And we were really loving uh, being in ministry in somewhat of an unchurched context. But we were uh, in the suburbs of Las Vegas, and we felt God calling us to be in in more of an urban setting, uh, downtown in a bigger city, and uh, felt like God had placed it on my heart to be a pastor of an established church. and so. With those things in my heart, I felt like God was just going to open up the right door. And so whenever I saw that First Baptist San Francisco, which is located down in the, the heart of the city, was looking for a senior pastor, I sent in my resume, not really knowing much about it being a, a, one of the oldest Protestant churches in the state, and rich history. Uh, I just knew that they they didn't require me to have senior pastor experience to send in my resume, which was kind of rare. And so I sent in my resume and just prayed to the Lord that if this was um, of His will, then that He would lead us there. I think I sent in my resume at the beginning of 2020. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the pandemic really started to... to take hold of our nation in March of that year. And so it was during this interview process, as it was just beginning, that the pandemic happened. And so as I was talking to the church, they you know, were kind of up in the air as to how the the, the pandemic was gonna affect their pastor search. Uh, but the interim pastor at the time, uh, he said, I really think you need to, to find your next senior pastor and he needs to lead you out of this strange time. It will be a, an important experience for him. And so as God continued to to lead the church and my wife and I in the direction of a feeling like I was called to be the senior pastor of First Baptist San Francisco, uh, we accepted the call in uh, August of 2020 and and moved here in September when everything was still really shut down. And it was a a strange time to move to San Francisco, um, not being able to go inside anywhere or meet many people in person, Uh, but it was a really great experience for God to be able to uh, allow me to step into this role and help lead our church through this uh, really interesting time. You know, one of the things that I think that is awesome about being a part of a, a church with such a rich history is to to know that God has led you know this church through these types uh, of times before. Uh, when we were going through the pandemic in, in 2020 and 2021, we found some pictures of First Baptist San Francisco during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. <laughs> And you know what? They were outside on Waller Street worshiping, and they were wearing masks. Uh, They weren't socially distanced. That was probably the only thing that that they didn't have right at that time. But they were outside worshiping, wearing masks. And about 100 years later, we were outside in 2021 worshiping, wearing masks. And we put those pictures together just to say, God is faithful to his church, and and he'll lead us through um, a variety of seasons so it was just a great comfort to step into that situation, knowing God is is taking care of his church, and I just get to be a, a part of that.
2: And exciting to see not only the sense of certainly resilience of God's word, that it that it never changes, but also the resilience of God's people down through the generations. Now, I, I, most right now. pastors certainly approach this with a sense of, of a pastoral responsibility, duty, caring for, feeding the, the flock, things of that sort. But I would imagine, given the trajectory of your ministry— Las Vegas to San Francisco, that there must be a tremendous a missional sense about mm. you and your passion for ministry, given the fact that two cities in a row now, you've picked locations that aren't necessarily considered the, the Bible belt. <laughs> <laughs> they're not even the Bible buckle or suspenders of the United States. So <laughs> talk to me a bit about that sense of what it means to be engaged in not only caring for a mature Group of believers, but at the same token, knowing that the minute you open the front door and step outside the mission field, where for a lot is miles, if not continents away. And for you, it's literally feet away.
3: Yeah. You know, just to speak to that trajectory that God's taken my, my ministry on, my wife and I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we, we met at church and, and got married in our home church. And, and so our home church really loved us. And when we told them we were being called to Las Vegas, You know, it was hard for them to uh, see us go, but they really felt like we were being called to the foreign mission field, going to Las Vegas. They didn't really know if there was even churches there. So they sent us out to this city and then when I told the people in Las Vegas that I was being called to San Francisco, the people in Las Vegas told me, "Well, you know, you're moving from quote unquote Sin City to the real Sin City when you go to San Francisco," and they thought they were sending us to the Ford Mission Field. And so it's been interesting to see how God has continued to bring my wife and I along on this journey. Uh, and you're right; I think at the heart of it is a desire to um, engage those who who don't yet know the gospel, uh, those who are outside the church. And what an opportunity! it is to be on a mission field. Uh, In some ways, it's like being in another country uh, where maybe the gospel isn't as prevalent, but the the great thing is there's not a language barrier, typically. Uh, We're able to speak with people and share with them. But I think one thing that I've actually really um, loved about being in these contexts, one, I I think just as we talk about pastoring and um, being at a church with mature believers, uh, what I find is that because let's just say in San Francisco, it's not as culturally popular to go to church as it might be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I find that those who come to church really want to be here. It's not just because their grandparents or their parents that always brought them to church and now that's just what their family did. Uh, it's because they want to be at church. And so there's just a refreshing spirit about being in church in a place that, that doesn't have a lot of churches and and the way that the believers are passionate about being there but also when you have opportunities to share with those outside the church i found in in louisiana so many times I had to convince people that they weren't Christians before they would listen to the gospel. So many people assume they were Christians because, well, yeah, I've always gone, gone to church or I was raised as a, a Catholic or a Baptist or whatever. Um, But in in the context of Las Vegas or San Francisco, most people are, are very ready to say they are not Christians. And so it, it takes away some of the, the back work that you might have to do in convincing people that they're not Christians uh, before you can share the gospel with them. But I do think it it requires uh, an intentionality to try to meet people where they are, where their uh, understanding already is, and make sure we're communicating uh, the good news of Jesus in a way that relates to them and in a way that they can understand it. Uh, Sometimes we might um, just use language that's familiar to us in the church, you know, of sin and the Savior, Uh, but I find that in San Francisco, we have to be intentional not to change the message, the message doesn't change, but to be able to to make sure we share it in a way that relates to those people who have maybe no background or upbringing uh, within the church or are familiar with that. And so um, we love getting to to share with those people, and we try to be intentional about meeting them where they are and, and helping them know that uh, God loves them. That there's a Savior who died for their sins, and that they can they can know salvation through Him. Uh, as they trust in Jesus.
2: And, and fascinating sort of the, the paradigm shift, uh, as you were sharing, thinking about differences between those that were raised perhaps in Christianity. They go to church on Sunday because, well, that's what they've always done. That's what mom and dad did. That's what grandpa and grandpa did. So this is what, we, what we've what we done and the way we choose to raise our children. But there is a greater sense of, of of cultural Christianity about it and I'm juxtaposing that against personal relational christianity which which is what you're talking about that i that I go to church because it's not what I do but rather who I am and how I identify and It's interesting because when you come to a place like San Francisco, you know Las Vegas is largely tourism, very transitory in in, in the sense that people come and stay for the weekend and then they're gone here in San Francisco. It's a bit of a different story in that you've got folks that are, are are here to stay that have come for job opportunities, high tech, the weather, whatever the case might be, certainly not for the cheap housing, I might add, <laughs> but <laughs> that they're here and oftentimes fit in that sort of nuns category that we're hearing about uh, these days, N-O-N-E, meaning yeah. that they have come from parts of the world where they have never been exposed to Christianity. Maybe they've heard about Jesus, but in terms of having some sort of a foundational um, recognition of having been raised in the church or gone through catechism, things like, they have none of that experience. And so to them, you almost start at ground zero in terms of introducing concepts of the existence of God and who God is and that he loves us so much and that he sent his son and things of that sort. How has that shaped your ministry in terms of those differences between ministering to people that perhaps do church more because that's part of their history or part of their quote-unquote Christian culture versus ministering in a place where there are so many that have no connection or affiliation with that sort of historical quote-unquote cultural Christianity whatsoever.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, when you you are, are trying to reach people who have that background in in Christian culture, even though they may not have that personal relationship themselves. You do have a foundation or a framework you can work from that they have an understanding and maybe of some Bible verses or what the Bible teaches or what Jesus has done. And so what you're doing, I think, is you're trying to help them see how those things are are both true and that they need to be applied to their lives. When you're coming to a place like San Francisco where people maybe don't have any background in Christianity or maybe have just some assumptions that they, they think this is what Christians are all about, uh, you kind of have to start at a different place. Um, I, I've been probably influenced a, a lot by uh, Pastor Tim Keller he I think is is part of the reason that I felt a call to the city he He really talks about the importance of um, churches being present and Christians being present in urban areas and being in the city and uh, he I don't think this was original to him, but but one thing I heard him say was that when you're doing uh sharing the gospel with people maybe in these contexts like San Francisco or New York City where he was, you really have to to make people want to believe that Christianity is true and then show them that it is. In other words, there was a a type of apologetics that maybe I had grown up with that was just answering a lot of the objections or questions people had about Christianity. But in a place like San Francisco, people don't always have those questions or objections. They are really just kind of maybe somewhat ignorant towards what Christianity really teaches or believes. And so what you have to do is, I think, show them that the things that they long for, maybe it is... um, satisfaction you know in their lives maybe it is a sense of community and people here in our city often struggle with loneliness maybe they want to see justice done in our city and and people cared for that those things that they they find longings for are actually found in god and in the gospel helping them to see that first and then showing them how it is true in what the bible teaches and in what god has has done through jesus and so giving them this appeal that the the longings that are there in their their hearts and in their lives Um, are real, uh, and they can only be met by the the God who has created them. And so taking that that shift has been helpful to me in relating to people who maybe don't have that background or that experience with Christianity.
2: Is it the difference then between telling the story, so to speak, versus living the story, a demonstrative Christianity? And I ask that question because folks that have at least some sort of uh, religious framework, we'll call it, that perhaps we may be able to go in and intellectually argue for from archaeology, from history, all of these other things that feed into being able to demonstrably give an argument for the claims of Christ versus people that have none of that foundational framework. And so I would imagine then that the notion of demonstrating Christ living the life becomes even more important than in a setting like this.
3: I think so. And I I think that's what Jesus taught us, right, In, in the Sermon on the Mount, about how he says you need to let your light shine, and he says, so that others see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we have to be able to share the gospel using words, but Jesus himself said it's going to be our our actions, our good works that give people a reason to want to know about the hope that we have, to want to listen to the message that we have to share. And so I think it is important when maybe, especially people in San Francisco, maybe the only thing they know about Christianity is that they've heard that it is oppressive or they heard that it is against their beliefs or lifestyle or something like that. I think it is really important to show, uh, like you said, demonstrating the power uh, of the gospel and the love of God to maybe those who are in need or or to those who might even disagree with us uh, to be able to uh, let our light shine, be the the salt of the earth, as Jesus said, in in hopes that they would see our good deeds and give glory to God. But even if they don't, we know that we're giving glory to God in the way that we are living and acting. Is there a lot
2: of reliance, therefore, upon the the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in this sort of ministry? And I ask that question because I think of the the upper room experience and uh, the notion of the descending of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And for a lot of Christians, they grow up in in Judea This is what they know. This is familiar to them. So the level of challenge is perhaps not as great. By the time you get to the uttermost parts of the earth, suddenly now it's every tribe, every culture, every tongue, even religious perspectives that are very unlike our own coming from different parts of the world. And that certainly is descriptive of what life looks like in San Francisco, the great melting pot where you literally have people coming from every tribe, every tongue, every continent landing here. And now this is the mission field that you find in front of you. So I'm I'm curious, Pastor Day, from your perspective, does reliance upon the Holy Spirit and sensitivity to where others are coming from really become penultimate when it comes to successfully sharing the gospel?
3: I definitely think so. I think you really made the point well there, you know, as you were, were speaking about the fact that sometimes I, I think we're we're maybe least likely to depend upon the spirit when we're probably most comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, so many times if we're in a place where Christianity is is the norm, if you will, or is part of the culture, uh, we can, not everybody, I, I know there's certainly a lot of people that rely on the Holy Spirit then, but I think that's maybe when we're most tempted to rely on our own power. I think when you're in a place like San Francisco, which is really in many ways the mission field, and, and you're just recognizing many of our members just at their work, students at their school, that what they believe is is not popular or or not the the prevalent view that to be able to live this out and to hold on to these beliefs and to share these beliefs with others um, really is going to be a work of god in his spirit and so i'm not to say that that we as a church are always perfect and and depending upon the spirit i think we can always grow but i do think that the tough situations sometimes that we find ourselves in or just recognizing that we might be in the minority as christians in this city uh, does force us to our knees in prayer does help us to rely on the spirit and his power to recognize this can really only be done by him. And and that's really a a great place to be when God brings us there in in being reminded of our dependence upon him.
2: For folks that have been eavesdropping on our conversation today, Pastor Day, and say, wow, you know, I, I, I like what this guy has had to share, and it just happens to be that my family's new here in the Bay Area, too. We're looking for a church home, and they want to perhaps know more about what God is doing at First Baptist of San Francisco. Tell us more.
3: Well, like you said, we are a church with a rich history, and I believe with a a bright future, and we're really excited about what God is doing in our church. As you mentioned, our church, one of the oldest Protestant churches uh, in California, maybe the oldest Baptist church in California, started in 1849. That means here in 2024, we're celebrating our 175th birthday. So uh, this fall, in September, we're going to have a big celebration, and we're going to invite some... Uh, old members and those who've had connections to our church to come. And it's going to be a great way to uh, celebrate as a church. But we want to celebrate not just what God's done at First Baptist, but what God's done in the Bay Area. He's been faithful to this area for so long. And so many people see it as as just a, a spiritual wasteland, if you will. But, but God's been doing things not just at First Baptist, but in many churches. And so this is a year where we are celebrating what God has done. And we'd love to invite people to come and to celebrate the faithfulness of God and the way he's worked through his people. But we also want to look towards the future, and we've got a great opportunity where God has placed us. As you mentioned, we're really in the the center of the city. We're at the corner of Market and Octavia. Uh, We have the opportunity to reach the people that God's placed around us. And this year, we've got a couple of opportunities to be able to really pray about how God wants us to reach our, our own neighborhood and how God wants us to be a part of reaching our city. Uh, we've recently started back after the pandemic, uh, a ministry of, of ministering to those who are unhoused or those who are really in need. And we've just seen it as a great way to build relationships outside the the church and to really live out the gospel, as you were speaking about earlier. So if people are, are looking for a church home and they really want to find a church that is active in the community, that is uh, meeting the needs of people, that is something that we're striving to do and something we want to grow in. And we would love for more people to join us, that we might be able to continue to live out the gospel more and to meet more needs of the community within our congregation, I think we have to be one of the more diverse churches that I've ever been a part of. I, I mean, just about in every aspect, generationally, socioeconomically, ethnically and racially, we are a very diverse church. And I love that aspect of it because you will find that that there are many people with different perspectives, different experiences, but yet we're all unified in the love of God and the experience of of what God is doing in our lives uh, as we trust in Jesus Christ. And so what we have found is that in our diversity, God's working together a great unity to bring us together to be able to do His mission. And with that diversity, we've got a lot of different programs. We've got you know, ministries for young children, for youth, our, our youth ministry, for our middle school and high school students is really strong right now. Uh, we're seeing our youth growing in their faith and connecting with those in their school. And we're even working with other youth groups in the city to do some exciting things. We've got young professionals, those tech workers that moved to the Bay Area and San Francisco, or uh, those who, who God's just brought here more recently, or we've got older members who've been in the city a long time I think what you'll find is that when you come to First Baptist San Francisco, you'll find someone who's probably a lot like you and many other people who are very different from you, but yet we're all brought together by the gospel. And it's a really refreshing experience to have that. And so I would say if people are, are wanting to come to a church that is involved in the community and, and wants to come to a church where they can grow with people who are different from them, but also very much like them in, in what they believe and place their hope in, That our church is a a great place that you should check out.
2: And what a joy it must be to. uh pastor church where the opportunities are so great and where the congregation looks so much like heaven. If you want to get more information about First Baptist Church of San Francisco, you can check them out online, firstsf.com. That's firstsf, think San Francisco, firstsf.com. Again, they meet at 22 Waller Street at Octavia. Some might know it better as Market at Octavia in San Francisco. Worship times are Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Of course, there's Bible study for all ages at 9 a.m a.m., and so we invite you to come on down, check it out, and be a part of this vibrant, growing church that's got a 175-year history and so many years yet ahead. Our thanks to Pastor Ben Day, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of San Francisco, for being with us today. Pastor, what a delight to get a
4: chance to know you. Thank you so much, Craig.
3: I've really enjoyed this opportunity.
4: If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be in Matthew 21 today. If you were with us last Sunday, we began this chapter, and we saw at the beginning of the chapter that it was telling us about Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So last Sunday, we were looking at Palm Sunday, the beginning of what is often referred to as Holy Week. And today, we're continuing our study of Matthew's Gospel and of Matthew chapter 21, and we come now to Monday of that week. And today, we're actually going to cover the whole rest of the chapter of Matthew 21, which is a pretty long section. But I wanted us to include this whole section together because I think there's really one main truth, one main idea that Matthew is communicating through the rest of this chapter. In fact, because this is a long section with one main idea, I actually want to go ahead and give you that main idea right off the bat. So before we even read from God's Word, I just want to tell you, here's what I believe the Scripture is is telling us this morning so they can kind of settle in your minds and so we can see it throughout the text. Main idea is pretty simple, I think. It's that true faith produces true fruit. I think this whole rest of Matthew chapter 21 Matthew recounts what Jesus is doing on this Monday of Holy Week. I think Jesus is orchestrating events and telling parables and teaching in such a way that we might grasp this point, that true faith produces true fruit. This is a a teaching that's not only in this passage, it's one that's all throughout the Bible. The Bible consistently kind of puts this imagery before us, this metaphor that, that Christian living living in a way that honors God, living in a way that is in line with his character, doing the things that God would will us to do is a lot like producing fruit. You see, I think that no matter how many times we've heard this imagery, maybe you've heard this idea millions of times growing up in church. You feel like you heard this all the time that it's about kind of bearing fruit or producing fruit. Or maybe this idea is kind of new to you, that the idea of living the Christian life is kind of like producing fruit. No matter how many times we hear it, I think it's something we always need to be reminded of. I think the Bible constantly puts it before us because, you see, the gospel is really counterintuitive to the ways that we often think and act as people. The gospel tells us that our identity and our worth, our forgiveness and our standing with God is not based on anything that we do. It's all based on what Jesus has done and our faith that is in him. Bible says all that we have, we don't earn any of it. We don't gain anything from all our good deeds. It's all based on faith and what Jesus has done. So a lot of times people will fall into one of two errors. Sometimes people will, will hear that message and they will say, well, yes, I have faith in Jesus, but I really want to make sure I'm I'm staying in a good relationship with God. And I really want to make sure that I, I can kind of prove that I'm a Christian. And so I'm going to make sure along with my faith, I do a bunch of good things go to church weekly, read my Bible, you know, not sin, do the good things that I'm supposed to do. And what happens is it starts to kind of change the gospel message. Now it starts to be that you are saved by both your faith and your good works. And there's some people that kind of fall into the other error. Some people would say, well, I know it's not about faith and works. It's really just about my faith in Jesus. And so I'm just going to place my faith in Jesus, I'm going to maybe say a prayer or go to church, call myself a Christian, but then it really doesn't matter how I live my life because I'm saved not by what I do, but by what Jesus has done. And yet the Bible would say that both of those really miss the point of the gospel. Both of those really miss what God is seeking to do in and through his people. And so the Bible constantly puts before us this idea that to live the Christian life is a lot like producing fruit. You think about this, this passage in John chapter 15, if you want to make a note and read it later in John 15, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he tells his disciples that he is the the vine. You got to think of him as the source of life. And he tells each one of his disciples, you guys are like branches. And as long as you are connected to me, the vine, the source of life by faith, you will produce fruit. But as long as you remain disconnected to me, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to produce fruit. You will not be able to accomplish really anything. So the Bible says that if you're approaching the Christian life saying, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus and it's not really going to have to affect the way that I live, you're kind of like a branch that's not really connected to the source. You can claim to have faith, but if it's not showing up in your life, there's no evidence that you're really connected to the source of life. But at the same time, the, the Bible's trying to tell you, if you're here to say that, that I'm a Christian because I've placed my faith in Jesus and because I'm doing all these good things, it's like you're stapling fruit to a tree. You're trying to give the appearance that there is life when there really isn't. You see, it's not the, the apples that make the tree an apple tree. Rather, the apples are produced because it is an apple tree. So it is with the Christian life. The, the, the living of the Christian life, the walking in the ways that God wants you to is not what makes you a Christian, but it is the effects of your salvation. It's not the cause of why we are saved, but it is the outworking that comes from our faith. See, Jesus is teaching these things because in this original context, the people of God, the people of Israel at that time, they did not have true faith in God. There was maybe some activity that gave the appearance of life, but really there was no life. There was no fruit. And so Jesus was helping them to see that that the kingdom of God was being taken away from them and it was going to be given to people who really had true faith and it it was evidenced by their fruit. And so this morning, I want us to, as the people of God who are beginning a, a new year, 2024, I want us to be a people that produce fruit. I want us to be Christians. I want us to be a church that, that lives in the way that God intends, that lives in, char- in line with his character, that obeys his will. But I want you to hear this morning that that is going to happen not when we try to staple fruit to our trees, not when we try to just make fruit come about, but rather when by faith we are abiding in the source of life, when we are truly building our life on the foundation by faith of Jesus Christ, that's when the fruit of God will be produced in our lives. So we're gonna see this truth, I think, kind of reiterated in a few different ways. And so this morning, because we have kind of a longer text, instead of reading the whole thing, we're gonna approach it by, by sections and just read it in parts as we go. And so I've divided up the the, the passage into to three sections that I think will help us to kind of get this truth that true faith produces true fruit. The first section is what I'm going to call the tangible picture. The tangible picture, the the reason I phrased it like that is because what we have at the beginning of this text is a a lived out teaching. It's tangible, it's something you can see, it's something that the disciples experienced. So often Jesus taught in parables, as we're going to see later in this passage. Oftentimes he taught in instructions and in other teachings. But this time Jesus is teaching through his actions. It's a, a tangible picture of this idea the true faith produces true fruit. Let me read to you verses 18 through 22 of Matthew chapter 21. It says, in the morning, this is Monday morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. I have to tell you, when I first started kind of reading the Bible seriously as a, as a young man, not just kind of hearing the stories that were always told to me, but really reading the Bible for myself, this was always one of the most confusing parts of the gospel, uh, of the gospel accounts. There's this account of Jesus cursing a fig tree. And I always kind of wondered, well, what was that about? I mean, so often we see Jesus using his power to heal to restore, to calm the storm. But here Jesus seems to use his power to kill a plant. What do you think? Was Jesus just hangry? I mean, it says that he was, he was hungry. Does he just get upset that there's no food? Why was he even expecting there? I, in another one, it, it talks about it wasn't even the season for, for figs. What's going on here? Well, I think it's really important that you know that in the in the Old Testament, there's different places, especially in the, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, where the people of God, the nation of Israel are referred to as sometimes different plants, but a couple of times as a fig tree. And God says that, that, there are many times that they are bearing either no fruit or they are bearing rotten fruit. And he is describing the way that they are not living as the people of God. And so what Jesus is doing with this fig tree is actually, it's a, it's a tangible picture. He is living out something. He is, he is teaching the people what it means to, to truly have faith by bearing fruit. You see, when Jesus came to this fig tree, it says that it had leaves. In other words, it gave the appearance that it had life. But on closer inspection, there was actually no fruit there. I think this is actually a picture of what Jesus was seeing at the temple this week. You remember yesterday, that Sunday, when Jesus went into the temple, Jesus went in there and there was a lot of activity. People were buying and selling. They were making sacrifices. People were probably offering those sacrifices and worshiping God. It gave all the appearance of life. But on closer inspection, there was not true fruit. The people were not actually doing the things that God had called them to do. And so Jesus is saying this fig tree is actually a picture of the people in my day, giving the appearance of life, but not actually producing the fruit that God intends. Now, of course, The temple of Jesus' day is not the only time the people of God have done that. Aren't there many times when we might come to a a church, to a group of Christians, to a group of religious people where there appears to be life, but on closer inspection, there's not true fruit. We remember the the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. tomorrow. Wasn't this one of his critiques of the, the church in America, especially of those who were white that there was this evidence of, of life and, and all the things that they were doing in a lot of ways. They were worshiping. They were reading the Bible. But yet there was a lack of true fruit and actually loving them, their neighbor as themselves. Actually caring for the people that God cared about. You see, this is often a problem is that there might be the appearance of life, but there's not actually fruit. And so Jesus uses this fig tree as a tangible picture to teach his disciples. Now notice where the disciples, their attention is drawn to. It's to the power to, to make this fig tree wither. Now, I'm always kind of, I always kind of marvel at the fact that the disciples marvel. I mean, what have they seen Jesus do so far? I mean, they've seen him calm storms. They've seen him heal people. They saw him raise someone from the dead who had been dead for days. And yet they are shocked by the fact that he could kill a plant. I've killed many plants in my day. Sometimes it's almost as quick as Jesus. But but yet they're they're shocked by this right? They marvel at it. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't take the discussion to showing what, here's how you get that power by all the things that you can do. Where does Jesus take the discussion directly to a conversation about faith? They want to know how does this happen? And Jesus says, don't you know that if you have faith in God, even greater things than this will happen. You think that something with a fig tree is, is powerful, but they're standing on kind of a mountain as they come down into Jerusalem. There were mountains around, and as they're maybe looking to mountains or coming down from a mountain, Jesus says, if you have faith in God, he can do the impossible. It's not just about a fig tree. Even a mountain can move. Now, sometimes people will hear that, and they will think that's the mark of true faith. True faith is marked by mountains moving. True faith, maybe in the next verse, as Jesus talks about praying and getting what you ask for in prayer, people will think that's the mark of true faith. True faith produces answered prayers. But Jesus isn't here, I don't think, saying that, that if we just have enough faith, then the mountain will always move. If we just have enough faith, then we'll always get what we ask in prayer. You see, to think of it that way is to really not treat God as God. It's to treat God as the one who's going to carry out our wishes. True faith is not just thinking that God has the power to do what you want him to do. True faith is that what God does is best. So Jesus is saying, if you really want to produce the fruit that God desires to see in his people, you have to have that kind of faith. You have to have the kind of faith that, that God can move mountains, but when he doesn't, or whatever that mountain might be in your life, maybe it's a cancer diagnosis. Maybe you thought, well, if I just had more faith, then God would take this mountain away. And it never moves. You think about Sonia's testimony, this, this flooding that she experiences in her home. Well, if I just had more faith, surely God would protect me. But coming to find out that faith is actually trusting God even through the storms, even when the mountains don't move. And you see, this is why Jesus makes even the connection to prayer. And this is a point of application for us as we think about true faith producing true fruit. One of the evidences of true fruit in our lives is going to God in prayer. One of the evidences that we really trust God is that we go to him in prayer. Because if we don't really have faith, we're going to try to tackle the problems on our own. We're going to spend all our time trying to move the mountain, spend all our time trying to make sure we get the right answer that we were searching for. Jesus isn't saying that we're supposed to be passive and not doing anything. But he is saying that we are supposed to go to God in prayer if we have faith. Because when we go to God in prayer, we really recognize that things are outside of our control. But we trust that he is in control. That he can do far more than we could ever do on our own. So friends, it is my prayer that we would be people of prayer in 2024. That we would not just talk about faith, but there would be evidence of our faith through the ways that we go to God in prayer. And I think it's so interesting here. If you go back and look at Jesus's words at the end of that section, when he says, if you go to God in prayer, you'll receive anything that you ask. If Pastor Ben was translating this, I would say, if y'all will go to God, if y'all have faith and y'all pray, y'all will receive what you ask for. Those are plural use. Jesus is talking to a community of his disciples. He's not just saying, well, it's about individual people praying on their own. He's saying, my people must come together and pray. What did he say last week? My house should be a house of prayer for all the peoples. If we're going to be people who produce the fruit that God wants us to produce in 2024, we are going to have to be people of prayer. That's going to come from being people of faith. So Jesus gives this tangible picture, a lived out example of what it looks like to, to appear to have life, but not really have the life that God wants. And then he enters the temple. We're going to kind of move through this section quickly, so I won't give it a title, but we'll read it. It says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven? Or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So just briefly, What's happening here in the temple as Jesus returns is he is continuing to, to live out what we talked about last week. He's displaying his authority, the fact that he is Messiah and king. But the, the rulers of that day, they want him to say it. They want him to say that he is working under divine authority because then they could accuse him of blasphemy. And remember last week I talked about the messianic secret being out. Well, Jesus knows that there is still a few more days in this week that he has before it is time for him to be crucified. And so instead of just outright saying by what authority, he asked them. He says, well, don't you know that I have a connection to John? He baptized me. He told people to follow me. What did you think about John's ministry? The leaders of that day, they did not follow John, but they knew many other people did. So Jesus avoids their trap by by setting a trap of his own, if you will leaving him in a no-win situation to where they just say, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, then I won't answer your question, but I will continue teaching you. And he does so by two parables. So let's call this section the convicting parables. Jesus tells two stories here that if we pay attention to them, should really bring a great deal of conviction to us. If we really hear what Jesus is saying in these parables, They should really convict us of our own sins, of our own faithlessness. So let's take the stories one by one. Let's read the first parable that Jesus tells. Starting in verse 28, Jesus continues on to speak to them. He says, well, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus here gives us a brief story, and he gives us a pretty clear explanation. Story's pretty easy to understand. There's a guy who has two sons. We've heard parables like this before. The way that the story goes is probably that this man owned a vineyard or or a place to work, and he probably did not require his sons to go out very often. doesn't sound like this was part of their regular chore list, but here's maybe a special occasion. Maybe some workers can't be there. There's a greater need. But he tells his sons that they need to go work. Notice how disrespectful the first son is. He's defiant to his father. He doesn't say anything nice. He doesn't call him sir or dad. He just says, I will not do it. You know any kids like that? Don't point to them. But even after being outright disrespectful and defiant, he actually changes his mind and goes and does the will of the father. He could say he produces fruit, right? But then there's a the second son. Notice how kind and respectful he is. He gives the answer that you would want your child to give. Go out and work in the field. I go, sir. Says he will do it. Speaks to him kindly. But yet there's actually no fruit in his life. He actually doesn't go and do the will of the father. You see, Jesus is teaching the same thing that he just illustrated in the fig tree. There were many in that day who appeared to be religious and moral. Claiming to have life, very respectful and talking about the things of God. But yet what God actually wanted them to do was not being lived out in their life. There was no fruit in their life. So Jesus says, "Well, well, this is an explanation of who is coming into the kingdom of God. You see what he says in verse 31? This is why the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They are like that first son. Yes, they were openly defiant to God disrespectful, not living by his law, but something changed. And now there is true fruit as they follow God. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This parable is really important because I think it gives us a description both of true faith and true fruit. Notice how both times Jesus talks about changing your mind. He says that the younger, or not the younger son necessarily, he says that the first son changed his mind. And then he says at the very end, you you leaders of the religious party today, you have not yet changed your mind. You see, true faith starts with repentance, turning from yourself and from your sin, turning from you being in control of your life, But there also must be a turning to something. Notice he says, change your mind and believe. Repentance and belief, this is true faith. The prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners of the day, they were displaying true faith. By repenting, by believing, and it was being evidenced in their life. Jesus is saying, as much as you want to appear respectful before God, there's actually no fruit because you're not actually placing your faith in Jesus. True faith will produce true fruit. The fruit is doing the will of God. Notice how the the first son changes his mind and actually goes and does what the father said. He says, this is what will look like when you truly have faith that God is God, that he really is your heavenly father. You will go and do what he says. You can't just claim to have this faith. It's gonna show up in your life. True faith." will produce true fruit. You think about the story of Noah, for example. God told Noah, the earth is going to be flooded. People are going to die, but you have a chance to be saved. If you will follow my instructions and build this ark, you and your family, these animals will be saved. And the Bible tells us that Noah was saved by faith. But imagine if Noah's faith was simply a faith that says, "Yes, God, I believe that you are who you say you are, you're going to do what you're going to do, what you say you're going to do, but I'm not going to build that ark." Noah could have claimed to have faith, but he would have drowned with everyone else. You see, Noah's faith produced a fruit, obedience to the Father. Noah was saved by faith, but he was also saved by a faith that produces fruit where he actually built the ark. Jesus is saying, You can't just claim to have faith. You can't just say that you believe in me. It's going to give evidence in your life. This is what is true for these people that are coming into my kingdom. They are showing their faith by obeying the will of the Father. Jesus tells a second parable. He continues in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country when the season for fruit drew near he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another again he said to other servants he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them finally he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son but when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Notice how prophetic their answer is. I mean, he is sharing here about the history of Israel, God's people, whom God had continued to love and send prophets and messengers, but they had continued to ignore and to abuse. And now God had sent his son standing in the temple in the flesh right before them. And they, in just a few days time, were going to put him to death. The same way that Jesus is prophesying about through this parable. But notice why they put him to death. It tells us in the parable in verse 38, when they see the son, they said, this is the heir. This is the son of the owner of the vineyard. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. You know, I, I think this is a pretty accurate description of sin. I've heard it said that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That what sin really is, is it's not just bunch, uh, breaking a bunch of rules or, or not being a good person, but sin is really living in God's place. That instead of receiving the blessings of God and giving him thanks, It's to try to claim those things of God for yourself. To try to live as if you were God. And in this way, we see that this is a story about the people of Israel. This is a story about the religious leaders who are about to put Jesus to death. But it's also a story about us. We are just as much at fault for why Jesus died. It was our sin that put him on that tree. It was for our sin that he died. Each one of us has looked at God and said the same thing. Let's do away with this God so that we might have the things that we want. See, this is a a convicting parable and it leads the people to recognize that God is taking away the kingdom, but notice who he's going to give it to, to those who will give him his fruits, those who will produce fruit. They will do so by true faith. This leads to the last section that I just want to briefly cover as we conclude, and that is the fulfilled prophecy. Jesus has lived out this picture in front of them with this fig tree. Then he's told them these two parables that has led them to the place where they actually see themselves in the parables. They recognize what he is saying. And so he ends by saying, this prophecy is now being fulfilled. Starting in verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus here is saying, I'm not just a prophet." I am a fulfillment of the prophecies. He quotes from uh, from Psalm 118, this prophecy that says that the the stone that the builders would reject would become the cornerstone. And this was all the Lord's doing. What is he saying here? He is saying it was God's plan for his son to be rejected. You think about that, that second parable that Jesus is concluding with here. I mean, what kind of owner would actually look at all these servants that he sent, and they've all been killed and abused, and he says, okay, let me send my, my son into this violent situation? It would actually be a really kind of foolish owner and father, wouldn't it? But Jesus is saying this is what God has actually done, not because he is foolish, but because he is faithful. From the beginning, God had said, I will have a people who are my people. I will have a people that will bear fruit. I will graft them into the true vine, to the true stump that comes from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. They will be my people and they will bear fruit. God was being faithful to his promise, so much so that he sent his son to be rejected by men. But it was all his doing. It was to fulfill prophecy that that what was happening in these days as they rejected him, as they put him to death, was the Lord's doing because the the stone that was going to be rejected was actually going to be the cornerstone. It was the first stone that was laid. It was the one that set the foundation and the plan for everything else. Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his resurrection, is the cornerstone for what God is doing in making all things new, in redeeming a people for himself who will bear true fruit. And he is saying that... Anyone who comes to me in faith, trusting me as the cornerstone, you will be a part of what God is doing and what he is building. But anyone who who continues to reject me, anyone who who stumbles over this stone, if you will, who finds offense at what Jesus is saying, says they will actually be broken to pieces. Says anyone who this stone comes down on in judgment, it will actually crush them. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, This stone that has been rejected, that is now the cornerstone, is actually also a stone of judgment. That if you reject this stone, you will actually experience the judgment of God. But if by faith you will trust that Jesus was broken and crushed on your behalf, if by faith you will trust that Jesus was rejected, that God in his faithfulness sent his own son, that you might be part of his true people, if you have that faith, you will produce true fruit. That if you have faith that, that is willing to build your life upon Jesus, as we were just singing about and as we're going to sing about in the next song, that if you would be willing to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life, that everything else in your life is based off of him, he sets the foundation and the plan. That if you will have that faith, that's when you will produce fruit. So Jesus says he's taking away the, the kingdom from, from those who are maybe part of this people who are not producing fruit. He's going to give it over to people producing fruit. Who is that? How do I make sure I'm someone producing fruit? It's not by your hard work. It's not by your actions. It's by your faith. If we want to be people who produce fruit in this year, it's going to come when we truly abide in the vine. It's when we truly allow God to, to prune us, as Jesus talks about in that John 15 passage, removing the things from our lives that are, are keeping us from bearing fruit. So I just want to ask you this morning, if you are to look at the fruit of your life, what is it telling you? Is it giving you evidence of true faith? If you were to look at your life and to say, that it's actually letting me know that I don't have that connection to the source of life. I want you to know that God has sent his son to be rejected by men, but to put himself in your place. If the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, putting him in your place that you might be saved, would you trust in him today? If you were to look at your life and you were to see that there is evidence that there is faith, but you would look and say, there's still places where I'm not bearing fruit. Would you allow God to prune you today? By faith, would you rest in him in such a way, abide in him in such a way that he would point out those places that need to be removed? He would give evidence to the places where you need to confess sin. You need to begin to carry out His will. We are going to bear this fruit, not by trying harder and, and setting more goals, but by abiding in the vine, by trusting by faith. When we trust in faith, then we'll be people who produce true fruit.
2: That is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of San Francisco, Pastor Ben Day.
1: This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.
0: Three-star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's...